0: This week on Pop of Culture, curators in Muncie.
1: Now if you try to see the Indianapolis Baroque Orchestra in Indianapolis, after driving down there, eating dinner and paying much more per ticket, you'll get the same experience. We're actually bringing them to you.
2: It's a peaceful and beautiful campus to spend time on, to play on, to walk your dog on.
0: We talked to the director of the David Owsley Museum of Art and the CEO of Minnetrista Museum and Gardens. Later, we'll talk to an artist remaking Family Heirlooms. Coming up on Pop of Culture from IPR.
3: Pop of Culture on IPR is made possible in part by the Indiana Arts Commission, a state agency, the IAC's Arts Partner for East Central Indiana, the Community Foundation of Randolph County, the National Endowment for the Arts, a federal agency, and by Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations.
0: From Indiana Public Radio, this is Pop of Culture. I'm Kara Duquette. Our co-host, Jen Blackmer, is in the field, reporting from Nebraska. We'll hear more from her in the coming weeks. We start today with a question. Did you know there's a museum in Muncie, founded in 1936? Despite its location at the heart of Ball State University campus, The David Owsley Museum's beautiful building and deep catalog of art from around the world is accessible and free to all residents of East Central Indiana and beyond. Director and Chief Curator Robert G. LaFrance talked with us about how he is working to further expand DOMA's collection and welcome the community. Thank you for talking with us today and I would like to begin by congratulating you on your 10th year as Director and Chief Curator of the Museum.
1: Well, thank you very much, and I'm glad to be here.
0: I want to ask you, why Muncie? What brought you to the David Owsley Museum of
1: Art? Well, there's really three things that uh, kind of jump out at me right now. First off is simply the collection. I came and visited Muncie. It must have been in the fall of 2013, and I was immediately astounded by what I saw, that we could have such a wonderful collection hidden away here in Muncie, kind of off of the main route. And I said, I need to do something about that. The second thing was it was a great opportunity to work with a major lifelong collector, David T. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you probably know, David T. Owsley is the grandson of Frank C. Ball. So there's a relationship with Ball State. Yes. He was also a curator at an art museum at several, actually. And then he later became just a collector and an appraiser and lives in New York City. In fact, he lives in my old neighborhood in New York City. So it worked out really well that I could work directly with David Owsley in his collecting. And then another reason, and I'm sure I can come up with many more, is I'm really a Midwesterner at heart. Um, I was born in Ohio, but I was raised in L.A. and I lived many years in New York and in Florence and in Rome and in Washington, D.C. and Champaign-Urbana. So I've lived around many places, but it really meant a lot to me to come back here to the heartland and make my contribution to culture.
0: That's really um, pretty wonderful. Um, There's so much going on here in the Midwest and for you to um, want to further that is what we love here. (laughs) Can you tell us a bit more about the work that you've done at the DOMA over time and maybe share some milestones that have occurred in the last decade?
1: You know, I had a a career before this, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked several places, and I'm really a scholar of Italian Renaissance art. That's how I started out. And I was very lucky to go to a wonderful school. Syracuse University has a program in Florence. But before that, I went to a Cal State school, which is very similar to this one, Cal State San Bernardino, which was formerly a teacher's college, very much like Ball State. So I was on this career trajectory to maybe come back to a school like Ball State one day. I went to New York University. After that, I got a doctorate, and I was very lucky to get a Fulbright for a study in, in Italy and also the, I worked at the Harvard S- University Center for Renaissance Studies. It's outside of Florence as well. I had a fellowship there. And when I came here in 2014, I had just finished my second book, um, and I published an article shortly thereafter in the Renaissance Quarterly, which is kind of the journal of record for my field. And I really felt I was at a point in my career and I needed to take on a big challenge. So I arrived here and I thought, this staff is wonderful. Let's build up the staff. And as soon as we did that, we were able to present over 10 years, 33 exhibitions, which I think is an astounding number for such a small staff. Um, and they range from contemporary global art to African-American art, um, Mexican modernists, women artists. We've even done a show about gender-based violence, and it's allowed us to connect the David Owls Museum of Art, DOMA, as we like to call it, to places like the World Bank Art Program, uh, the Korn Foundation in Berkeley, and many others. So, I think all those things are milestones. Plus, we put on hundreds of programs, literally hundreds of public programs in the last 10 years, and that really connects us to the community and the student body. There are many more milestones in this, um, but for me, these are really important things that have happened. It's kind of the everyday, always putting out an exhibition, making sure there's always going to be the next exhibition, there's the next program, there's the next kind of public engagement.
0: Is there a lot of traffic from the community and the students at Ball State in the DOMA?
1: Well, at DOMA, we do have quite a few students that come through. I mean, I like to say we have a captive audience of students here on
2: campus.
1: (laughs) But I still find students that haven't been here. So we started doing programs with the College of Fine Arts where they do their orientation here. All the College of Fine Arts majors do their orientation at the museum, which I think is a great introduction Um, A lot of classes require that you come to the museum. We like that very much, too. And so we have that captive audience. The community can be a little more difficult to get them onto campus, period. Uh, A lot of people in this community don't feel welcomed on campus for various reasons. A beautiful building like this is such a treasure and we're free every day. You can come and visit. It's all yours to enjoy. But others are afraid they can't find a place to park on campus, for example. So there's still barriers out there, although we've taken away the main barrier, which is financial, that we have free admission. And we try to be open as much as we can. Remember, we're open five days a week, Tuesday through Saturday. It's Saturday afternoon only and Tuesday through Friday from 9 to 4.30. Um, But I would love to invite more people from the public in from East Central Indiana because that's our region. We are the art museum, the main art museum in East Central Indiana.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about um, some of the things they might see, or how they might, what they might experience if they come to visit?
1: Well, we have an amazing world art collection, and that you know, if there's such a thing as a vision, or if I can present a vision of the places. When I arrived in 2014, it was clear to me; it seemed like common sense at the time that after a number of gifts have been given by mostly by David T. Owsley of works of art from all around the globe that this museum had transformed itself from one that was kind of a sleepy regional museum into a museum that had works of art representing all seven continents. So this kind of world art museum where people can come here and we have really the goal that one day every Ball State student's culture could be represented here in this museum. So it's a place for students to come and connect to their culture. It's also a place for people from the community to do the same. And for many, I'm, I like to call the museum often a front porch for the, for the university. This is a place that's free and open to the public. You can drive up and there are metered parking spaces, so you can manage that. And there's also a parking lot, uh, also metered during the day, but on the weekends it's free parking. Don't forget that yes. you can enter the university in this open space, accessible space see some wonderful cultural objects that may connect you to your past and your heritage and then kind of enter into the rest of the university's cultural corridor. We're part of a larger kind of constellation of cultural uh, offerings here at Ball State. There's the um, Orchid Garden, the the Glick Glass Center for Glass. There's uh, Christie Woods. We have Circa Hall, of course, and Emmons, and now we have a new outdoor amphitheater as well as a planetarium. So try to keep all those in mind. We have several cultural amenities here that much larger cities do not have. So I hope you'll come and see them.
0: An invitation is a great way to get people to come and see what there is to offer at Ball State on the campus and I guess um, you were talking about people um, finding maybe a connection to their own heritage or their lives in the collections of art and as the curator and director do you what what do you add from your vision and your life experience to the collections
1: well I've I've obviously traveled quite a bit and visited museums from throughout the world so that really helps a great deal with choosing works of art that we have here But I personally take a much more Catholic with a small C, kind of universalist view of the art world. And I'd like everyone to experience a wide range of of art when they come to the museum. You know, I have my favorites. We all have our favorites. But I want to make sure that everybody's favorite is somehow satisfied. So if you look, and you can look actually on our website, which is very simple. It's bsu.edu forward slash DOMA, D-O-M-A. Go to our website, and there's an exhibitions page. You can look at the history of our exhibitions and how wide-ranging they are. We've had these, we have had a wonderful exhibition on African-American art recently, um, which also caused us to do a little reckoning. Back in 2020, we only purchased works of art by African-American artists. And in that year, we also held an exhibition, like an adjunct exhibition to the African-American art exhibition that was visiting. That was a collection from Atlanta. We took works from our collection, which caused me to sit down and, and think, okay, what is the culture like here in Muncie? Have we been collecting works of African-American art? This is just one example of many. And I found that we have. Um, we have, since the 1950s and 60s, collected things like Jacob Lawrence's first print. And we had several works on paper by Richard Hunt, who had been, he's, a, he's really the senior African-American sculptor who, of the Midwest, really, and of the, of the nation, frankly, who unfortunately recently passed away. And I noticed that at that time, back in 2020, we only had works on paper by Richard Hunt. And he's a sculptor. Mm. So I was able to contact him as a director and immediately start negotiations to purchase a sculpture from him. And in fact, one of my favorite works is right here in the center of the sculpture court and, at DOMA. And that is a, a lovely kind of both mineral and biological, twirling, growing example of his work. It's, it's a beautiful thing that i like you to see by Richard Hunt. It's called Daphne's Defense. And he even let me choose the title. I offered him four different titles, and he let me choose this one, and I explained why I thought it was a good idea, and he agreed. Talk about the nicest man on earth. He was a wonderful, wonderful artist. So we, that's just one area that we're talking about here, African-American art. We also have a, uh, a part-time curator of Asian art as well. So we have recently did a show called Fibers of Being, which showed some of the Asian art from our collection, mostly textiles. So that was worthwhile as well. So we have things to try to connect with the multi- multiplicity of cultures at the museum.
0: Well, um, when... Uh... Myself and Luke came in. We saw the piece by Richard Hunt, and it's absolutely lovely. It's one of the first things you see when you come into the museum. I appreciate you sharing that story with us about how he came to acquire it and how he wanted to extend uh, what you had from Mr. Hunt to further, more fully represent his forte. Can you tell us how many galleries are there in the DOMA?
1: You know, I've lost count. Okay. And it depends on what you call a gallery, but we have at least, <laughs> at least, at least a, a dozen, let's say. This building, the Fine Arts Building, was built in 1934 and 1935, and it was always built to house all the arts. It had a recital hall, still has a lovely recital hall, for theater and music. It had a whole music section. All the music was taught in this building. And they had a department of art, which was also taught in this building. But in the center of the building, there's this lovely sculpture court. And this is all in a lovely kind of late Gothic, Germanic late Gothic style. The architect was actually German American, the name of George F. Schreiber from Indianapolis. And it was built during the middle of the Depression. With all the most beautiful materials you could find. You know, pinkish marbles, lovely glazed tiles in the hallways. It's a work of art. And also, we have it, the rooms full of art as well to come and see.
0: And what does it say? Gracious living is the finest art, is the first thing you're.
1: It has wonderful little logos and, and sayings uh, above all the doorways and exits. So come and read those, and you'll get a, a view into 1930s thinking about art.
0: And and the museum was initially conceived of by a group of women, a women's organization? Uh, An
1: idea for a museum, you could trace it all the way back in Muncie to the 1890s. There was something called the Art Students League. They were all students of uh, a group of Impressionist painters that kind of worked around a guy named J. Otis Adams here in town. And J. Otis Adams married Winifred Brady Adams, And Winifred Brady Adams' sister, Elizabeth Brady, was married to Frank C. Ball. (laughs) So it's all connected somehow. Yes. But at that time in the 1890s, these ladies decided that we should start a collection. And they started a collection, and it eventually transmogrified over time because there were different versions of it. And it started a collection that became the collection here at Ball State. Uh, The big impetus, though, however, was after uh, 1918 when the when the university was named Ball State University had other names before after the Ball family frank c ball decided to lend his personal collection and that really amplified the art collection here
0: well it's it's a beautiful museum and there are so many different styles of art throughout the museum yeah. and it's uh, for those who've been to the metropolitan museum of art it has a bit of a A smaller version of that vibe. Um, And also, I wanted to ask you, um, there's a new exhibit I hear that's coming to the Doma, and could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes. The new exhibition is called Beyond the Medici, the Howe Collection, and it opens on February 22nd, and it runs through May 19th. Um, I'd like everyone to come and see it, of course. Uh, The main topic here is Florentine Baroque art, which is really an understudied area in the history of art. Most general surveys, the art history class you take in in college, it kind of jumps from the Renaissance in Florence to the artists of Rome in the Baroque period. However, they didn't close close up shop in in Florence during the 17th (laughs) century and move to Rome. there were some really interesting things happening in Florence. There was a real flowering of music in the sciences in the 17th century. That's Galileo's period, for example. Galileo and the invention of the telescope, and Galileo was protected by the Medici family. So that's all happening in Florence, but there's also a group of Florentine artists who are creating this really powerful, uh, rich, robust, colorful, emotional art, which you're going to see in this show. Another point about this show that's really important is the frames, or are the frames. The frames are over-the-top Baroque frames. Gold, ebony, card figures, inset with semi-precious stones. These, are, these frames often are just as good as the works and paintings that are in between the frames. Wow. But at our, our venue, we're going to mix the Florentine Baroque art with European Baroque music. And we're trying to build... A more immersive experience. So there's going to be hours for music in the galleries. We'll be playing music over the the PA system. And then on March 28th, we've invited the Indianapolis Baroque Orchestra to give a concert at Circa Hall at 7.30 p.m. So that's March 28th. Indianapolis Baroque Orchestra is coming. It is an Arts Alive event, which means that student tickets are free regular tickets have been subsidized so that they're only $10 per person. Now, if you try to see the Indianapolis Baroque Orchestra in Indianapolis, after driving down there, eating dinner, and paying much more per ticket, you'll get the same experience. We're actually bringing them to you here in Muncie.
0: For $10. For
1: ten, just $10. And students are free. Don't forget. Mm -hmm. On February 29th and April 11th, we're going to have two big musical performances here in the museum, in the sculpture court. And those are absolutely free. And that's a collaboration with Ball State faculty and students and some members of the public. And so you, you can hear Baroque music here at the museum for free on February 29th. That's Leap Day. And April 11th after the eclipse. And then finally, we're going to use another room to do Baroque music pop-ups.
3: Do we've tell. invited,
1: yes, we're, we've invited faculty to work with their students and we have a special space, the one we're sitting in right now, which we have a stage set up and we'll have art along the walls so that they can do a pop-up playing Baroque music with the Baroque art around them in, in a truly immersive experience.
0: Sounds like it's going to be a feast of sight and sound here at the Doma.
1: That's the idea.
0: Well, um, is, are, is there anything else you'd like to discuss with us today?
1: I just want to point out again that our website is BSU.edu forward slash DOMA D O M A. We enjoy we enjoy that that little acronym. <laughs> yes. And I also want to make clear that we're open Tuesday through Saturday. That's Tuesday through Friday, nine to four thirty PM, and then on Saturday afternoons, one thirty to four thirty. And don't forget Saturday afternoons parking is free in the quad area. So it's very easy to visit at that time.
0: Well, great. Um thank you
1: so much well thank you for having me
0: that was dr robert g lafrance director and curator of the david owsley museum of art on the campus of ball state university we spoke to him inside the brown gallery of doma just off the sculpture court that welcomes visitors In less than two months, east-central Indiana will be in the path of totality for a total solar eclipse. Not that we're excited or anything. IPR's Phil Hoffman sat down with President and CEO of Minnetrista Museum and Gardens in Muncie to talk about some of the planned festivities.
4: We're joined by Brian Stotts, who's the President and CEO of Minnetrista Museum and Gardens. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Phil, good to be here. So talk, let's talk a little bit, you've been at Minnetrista now for around a year, uh, right? Yes. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about, as a person coming in to this role and uh, not being familiar maybe with Minnetrista as as folks here in the community are, tell us a little bit about those first impressions and sort of as you were talking about uh,
2: coming in here, what, what really struck you about Minatrista? Well, I had heard of Minnetrista by reputation Uh, But when I visited here during my interview process for the first time, I was really struck by the beauty of the grounds and the historic mansions on our campus. And it was a time of year where everything was still in bloom, and I was just mesmerized by the peaceful uh, beauty of the campus, uh, of the 40 acres that we have here, and just the sense of calm and well-being that I think you can get just by walking around. Uh, then, of course, you have to go to work, and the you know senses of calm and well-being <laughs> lessen somewhat. But for our visitors, I think it's a fantastic place. And uh, just uh, really impressed by all the work that has come by those who came before me in just making it a place where East Central Indiana can come, learn about art and history and culture of this region. And uh, we just, it's a... It's an honor to be here and to try to preserve this and build on it.
4: Now, as you said, I mean, this is really a, a sort of a gathering place for the community. Uh, for folks who are maybe new to the community or aren't familiar with Minatrista, you talk a little bit about sort of the, the kind of things that happen
2: here and the purpose. Absolutely. So Minatrista was established by the Ball family. And our campus is basically the site where the five Ball brothers uh, set up their homes uh, in the turn of the 19th to 20th century, uh, and they continued their uh, their glass uh, and jar factory uh, production. Uh, the property stayed in the family for decades and continues uh, to this day. And they set this museum up in 1988 to be a repository for not only their family and company history, but also the history of uh, East Central Indiana, uh, and not just you know, the typical things that you would think of with history, but people who lived here, whether they were you know big and famous at the time, like the ball family was, or they just worked here, or you know, just made an impact in their families or community. And uh, it's something where I think everybody can find, a little bit to relate to uh, as they walk our grounds or look at our galleries. We have four galleries in our building itself, our main building, and then we have uh, exhibition galleries in two of our historic homes. uh, The L.L. Ball home where Bob Ross painted for a number of years before moving to your campus, Phil. And uh, also the Oakhurst uh, home where uh, George and Francis and Betty Ball lived, and uh, we kind of recreate a little bit of what the home looked like for them. So there's you know bits and pieces for, I think, everybody to enjoy, but what we really want is for people to just come and forget about their lives for a minute, or an hour a day, and uh, just kind of take it in, You know, take in some culture, forget about the world for a while, enjoy time with family and friends, and have a good time.
4: Well, certainly there's the historic aspect, right, uh, uh, of Minnetrista, but also this is a place that's there's always something going on, there's always an event of some sort. And uh, as we approach in April, we're gonna of course have the the event of the eclipse, um, and we're all working together uh, at Minnetrista and us at Ball State Public Media and IPR, but also the folks at
2: Orchestra Indiana on something pretty big. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, thank you. We're super excited about this. So on April 7, the day before the total solar eclipse in Muncie, we, weather permitting, will be very proud to host (laughs) Orchestra Indiana and your organization on our campus for an eclipse concert. And uh, it's going to be kind of space themed music, but also some popular songs. Uh, as well as classical music related to Eclipse or, you know, the solar system. And it's just going to be a fun time. It's a free concert. Uh, It'll start at 5 p.m. that Sunday, April 7. And we just invite everybody who can make it here to make it. And it'll just be a nice time for the family, a chance to gather, enjoy some great music. And uh, we're thrilled that you and your organization will be broadcasting it on radio and television for, uh, you know, the region to enjoy and beyond. It's just a nice, you know, it's a once in a, what, 500 year opportunity. Uh, So we thought we ought to do something a little bit special for it. And we're super grateful that you and your organization and Orchestra Indiana will be here for this. And we think it'll be something that everyone can enjoy.
4: Certainly gonna be a big day, a big weekend, really, when you think about all the things that are happening here in the uh, Muncie area. And regardless of the concert, I imagine that Minnetrista will probably be booming uh, that whole weekend, right?
2: Yes, that's the plan. Uh, We are partnering with the Muncie Children's Museum and others to put on some family-friendly programs. Uh, We will have a play uh, written by Jen Blackmer on our campus that's related to the eclipse and some history there. Uh, But we want to do our part, uh, as the rest of Muncie is doing their part, to um, just make it a weekend where everybody can have a good time and learn about the eclipse, experience the eclipse, of course. Uh, And whether you're a Muncie resident or you live just outside or you're traveling to Muncie for this, I think the city and the Visitors Bureau and really the entire arts community has done a great job in setting up a menu of things that will keep folks informed and entertained really that entire weekend all the way up through the eclipse itself. So if you had
4: an opportunity to, to uh, chat with somebody that maybe hasn't visited, uh, Minatrista what, what's a couple of things that you really would like folks to know uh, about this, this organization and what you do, but most importantly,
2: why should they come here? I, uh, I am biased in my opinion, Phil, but I think (laughs) Minnetrista's campus uh, rivals uh, nature centers and gardens from all over the country and maybe beyond. Our historic homes along Minnetrista Boulevard that overlook the White River, it's a great slice of Americana. Um, It's a peaceful and beautiful campus to spend time on, to play on, to walk your dog on, And to learn about, you know, some some good people uh, in East Central Indiana who give their all to make this a great place to live. Bob Ross, the fact that he came to Muncie and that the people of Muncie were wise enough to understand what they had in him and invite him to stay. To me, it's incredible. And we get visitors from every state. Uh, and we get letters and phone calls from other countries wanting to know more about Bob Ross. You know, What's his connection to Muncie? Was he really as cool as he seemed to be on TV? And the answer is yes. And this is unassuming person with a very distinctive hairdo who hasn't, you know, he died, what, 30 years ago, but he still makes an impact on people and uh, a meaningful impact. Um, but that's a great part of our campus. And it's not everything, but it's an important component to what we do. Um, and I think as the only other thing I would mention is that uh, this year we're opening an exhibition about the ball stores, which was a very big part of the Muncie community for decades. Uh, and it was just something that was a big part of the fabric of people's lives here. It's a cultural phenomenon for Muncie. And uh, so we're looking forward to that in connection with the wonderful book that Karen Vinson wrote. Brian, thank you. Thank you for
4: joining us today. We appreciate your time. This is Brian Stotz, president and CEO of Minotrista Museum and Gardens. And please, everyone, if you're tuned in right now, please come see us on uh, April 7th when we have the big concert. We'd love to see you here in person and put you on television. But if you can't make it, we hope you'll watch or listen. Thank you,
2: Brian. Thanks, Phil. Always a pleasure.
0: That was IPR's Phil Hoffman talking with Brian Stotz, President and CEO of Minnetrista Museum and Gardens in Muncie. Now, our producer Luke Jones spoke to an organizer of an event happening next week, telling the story of slavery through jazz.
5: Hi, I'm Nathaniel Snow. I'm Assistant Teaching Professor of Economics here at Ball State University, and I am affiliated scholar with the Institute for the Study of Political Economy.
3: And you spearheaded this event that is coming Thursday, the 22nd Frederick Douglass Jazz Works. Help me connect
5: Frederick Douglass with jazz. So we're happy to be hosting the Frederick Douglass Jazz Works, which is a performance of compositions by Ruth Naomi Floyd, who has taken the speeches and essays of Frederick Douglass and set them to jazz. Uh, Floyd is an educator. She is um, a musician, a composer, a vocalist, and she's had a deep passion for connecting the history of of the African-American experience with her music. It's
3: actually Frederick Douglass's words, right? She's taken what he wrote and what he said, and
5: she's put it to jazz? Absolutely. She has taken some of the speeches and some of the essays, even some letters personal letters from Frederick Douglass and composed them into musical pieces. Frederick Douglass was an abolitionist, a speech maker, uh, a statesman, uh, and an author. Douglass's works are useful in examining some of the ongoing struggles within and among our political climate today.
3: And you spoke about some of the writings that he did. I understand that the Remnant Trust is lending, the an organization that's lending you, or <laughs> that's lending this university, I should say, some of those writings of Frederick Douglass, correct?
5: Remnant Trust is an, is an organization that collects antiquated literature materials. So they have old copies, first edition copies, for example, of one of Frederick Douglass's books. They're bringing a copy of the Emancipation Proclamation that was printed shortly after the Emancipation Proclamation was given. They're bringing a couple other uh, issues uh, from newspapers that Frederick Douglass wrote, and, and other artifacts like that, that they encourage people to pick up, hold, and read directly from these first edition copies of the books. So for a bibliophile like myself, it's a very exciting experience to get to hold the first copy and to read directly from it. So let's talk about how someone
3: can get there. I know the performance with uh, Ruth Naomi Floyd is at Pruis Hall on Thursday the 22nd in the evening. Where is the Remnant Trust display? Is that also in Pruis?
5: The Remnant Trust will be setting up their display in the lobby of Pruis Hall. They will be there uh, with these artifacts, um, helping people to look at them and understand their context. The documents will be available to look at before and after the performance. For Pruis Hall, it's it's located sort of behind the library on campus. Uh, you can park, I think, in the, the New York Street garage or in the McKinley garage, and you should be able to get your way over to Pruis Hall. We're going to start at 7 o'clock.
3: Is there anything else we should know about this event?
5: We're really grateful for you having us on to talk about this. Uh, we're really thankful to everybody who's helped to collaborate to make this possible. And uh, we're really excited to bring Ruth Naomi Floyd and her sextet of jazz musicians to campus to perform the Frederick Douglass Jazz Works.
3: Awesome. Dr. Snow. thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Luke Jones.
0: I'm Kara Duquette.
6: It's time to ask another local artist. What are you working on? My name is pronounced Molly Shaler, not Shaller, which it often happens to be used that way. And my husband actually had to tell me that I was pronouncing his name wrong about two months into our dating process. He, he let me know I had that all wrong. So <laughs> it's common. <laughs> it happens to all of us. As far as my work goes, I... Definitely am a creative. I've been making things all my life, practically compulsively. So I tend toward more of the craft um, type of arts, as well as some things I've done more recently, which is doing um, community engagement through art and a little bit of education through art. So um, I like to find creative ways to get people involved with um, objects that tell stories, I made a list actually because I was like, "Oh, there's always, always <laughs> the next thing." Um, I've been making jewelry, which has been very fun. I love that because it's color and it's texture and it's an object that someone interacts with um, pretty intimately. You know, like wearing it on their body. And um, a piece of it lately that I've been having more fun with than. I usually even have with making jewelry is remaking and restoring and repairing jewelry for people. Um, Uh Once again, it comes back to that, like objects that carry stories. And so many people have pieces of jewelry that have been sitting in their jewelry box. And it was say, you know, great aunt Sally's. And I remember her wearing it over and over, always at holiday gatherings. and. for some reason, it got broken sometime in history, or maybe you you um, got it through a, um, just like when your aunt passed away or something like that, and you want to remember her story and you want to wear part of her story and keep it with you, but it's broken, or maybe it's not quite your style anymore. <laughs> and I have had the best time talking with people about their stories and their loved ones and these objects and either remaking them into something that suits their current um, style and fashion, but still like echoes back to your aunt's great aunt, Sally's story, or just um, repairing it in a way so that let's say like, let's say that maybe there was a piece that you bought on your vacation and you really loved it. But when you actually put it on, it always falls in a funny way. And it doesn't quite work with your body. So I get to talk with people about what, these, these objects that they love. And then I get to work with them to remake them into something that they can enjoy all the time and wear close to their bodies, um, in the future. So that is what I'm really excited about right now. Oh, well, that's
0: really exciting. I like the idea of connecting people through art and through, um, wearable art for sure. So the people give you information about their aesthetic. As mm-hmm. well as talking about their loved one,
6: yeah, it's it's really fun. And sometimes just doing research to find appropriate materials to repair things mm-hmm. has been um, a really nice aspect of it as well. And it's kind of a, I like to have multiple projects. So there are some that are more like research type projects, or there are some that are more um, creative projects where I get to be really expansive but also having some limitations I've found can really push you creatively. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's what this has felt like. This is kind of like a project with limitations that pushes me creatively and I get to connect with other people through.
0: So what would you say your biggest inspiration is throughout this particular work?
6: Oh, I would say people and stories, mm-hmm. um, and, and then also, I, I absolutely love working with jewelry. It's such a treat to get up in the morning. And um, for a while, I was working with a lot of Swarovski crystals. And so I would just spread them on the table and they would throw light all over the room. And it was just one of the biggest treats. It was like eating with my eyes. It's just beads, I think, are such a fun little tiny way that when you accumulate them and put them together in interesting ways, they can tell stories as well. Um, so color and texture and, and people's stories are the things that really draw me to this project.
0: I could understand that. Swarovski's crystal is so beautiful, um, sparkly, joyful. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the aesthetics in the jewelry that you're working on now?
6: Let's see. Well, can I tell you about a second project that I'm excited about that's sort of similar to that? Of course. But, okay. <laughs> All right. So this was this was I the jewelry that I'm into now has been really fun, but often it's it's limited, like I said, by what I'm receiving from other people. Um A project that I'm really excited about right now is a project that will be um, like a community art project in that it will work with kids, which is one of my favorite things as well. And it works with their kids' stories and the stories um, bound into place here in Muncie. And um, what I am excited about is that this project is going to use glass, which a lot of beads are made out of glass, But it's going to take and I'm going to we're going to use the um, a laser machine, which is like a water laser Mm -hmm. that can etch on glass and it can also cut glass. And what we're planning to do is to um, have kids from different parts of Muncie during their school year, during the day they get to um, draw pictures that are reminiscent of their experience at school or something that's inspiring to them. And then we're going to have them, um, these put onto, etched onto these different pieces of glass that are built and cut into the shapes of the, of a Muncie map. So it's kind of like different, like the way that the roads divide up Muncie, this is going to be a huge stained glass project that we'll put together with the kids' drawings, images on there. And then gathered together into a big map of Muncie. So the kids from different parts of the city would have their projects showing up in different parts of the stained glass project. And so that's that's the other project I'm very excited about right now is um, being able to use a little bit of technology and storytelling and a familiar material that's stained glass. In a project that um, that we can then share, and it can move around the the city and find its pieces, and then come together as a display. Well, I speaking of that, do, can you
0: like just tell me one of the places that you really enjoy creating?
6: I have. I'm really lucky in that um, we had a, a barn in the in the backyard of our house. And a portion of it, we finished and I do most of my work in here right now. I'm actually, I'm in there right now. And it's my quiet space. When you said I needed a quiet space, I knew exactly where to come. (laughs) Um, And it has, um, I lost it a little over two years ago, it burned down. And so there was a period of time (sighs) that I didn't have it. And I realized how much of my creative life and happiness was wrapped up in this space. Mm -hmm. And its um, it was the pesky chicken coop, I think, that started the fire. But anyhow, um, it's back now and it's wonderful. And it has two more windows that look to the south and the light comes in and it's fantastic. I love it.
0: Oh, that sounds like a beautiful place. I uh, think that it's uh, important to have a space that inspires you. Um, Is there a place that you, um, that we can see some of of this art that you make? Well, I would
6: love if they visited me on my website. I have a website called All In Knots and it's knots with a K-N-O-T-Z because so much of the work I do, whether it's sewing or knitting or jewelry making or even bookbinding has knots in it. So it's all in knots with a Z.com. And you can get in touch with me there. If you have some objects that need a little bit of love and care, or if you just would be interested in um, purchasing some jewelry I've made or keep up with the projects I'm working on.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Molly. We really appreciate
6: it. Thanks for having me. This was just a joy.
0: I'm Kara Duquette, and we are so happy to have you here with us for Pop of Culture as we talk to people creating the arts and culture in East Central Indiana. We are thrilled to be entering our third week of the show and getting so much positive feedback from you. Thank you for listening and getting out into the community and being a part of Pop of Culture. We have a couple of events to look forward to. Arrival from Sweden, the music of ABBA will be at the Honeywell Center February 16th. Tickets at HoneywellArts.org. If you miss that, they'll be at the Paramount Theater in Anderson, February 18th. Tickets are at Anderson Paramount, dot is an Americana Cajun band from Louisiana. They'll be at Pruis Hall on Tuesday, February 20th. Tickets are through the Emmons box office at bsu.edu forward slash web. Forward slash emmons, forward slash events. We want to let local artists know the Indianapolis Zoo has a call for entries for their Naturally Inspired paint Out Day on April 13th. Submissions must be complete by the end of February at indianapoliszoo.com, forward slash events. Looking way ahead, on the evening of February 29th, students from the School of Music, the Honors College, and the Delaware County community will perform works from the Baroque period to celebrate Doma's special exhibition, Beyond the Medici, the Hakul Family Collection. This event is free and open to the public. On display is the struggle for freedom, a look at the Underground Railroad and how it functioned as a powerful act of resistance against racial oppression through Sunday, February 18th, from 12 noon to 5 p.m. daily at the YWCA Central Indiana Community Room, 310 East Charles Street, Muncie, Indiana. Free and open to the public.
3: Pop of Culture on IPR is made possible in part by the Indiana Arts Commission, a state agency, the IAC's Arts Partner for East Central Indiana, the Community Foundation of Randolph County, the National Endowment for the Arts, a federal agency, and by Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations.
0: That's our show. Pop of Culture was produced this week by Luke Jones and hosted by me, Kara Duquette, You can find more episodes at indianapublicradio.org forward slash pop of culture. We are a production of Indiana Public Radio on the beautiful campus of Ball State University.